Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. Mm, no fucking around. Let's yeah, get right. right into it. I say that. I don't. I don't have my list up. So, so hang on. Um, let me let me fuck around a little bit. So just a little bit of fucking around. Okay. So uh, oh, I can't think of any jokes. Can't too much. Um, knock knock. Who's there? Dishes. Dishes who? Dishes Sean Connery. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that one. How long have you? <laughs> you actually have heard that one because I've told you that one. Before. Have you? Okay. Because yeah. I was going to say like, how long have you known that? Because that seems like something you would have told me maybe the first time I met you. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't remember that one. Oh, that's that's fun. Uh, I'm glad you liked it. Okay, we can get started. There we're we gonna, go. We're going to kick off with a movie that I know you're eager to talk about. Okay. Because you're always eager to talk about it. Okay. It's about a year old. I finally got around to watching it. I watched The Shallows. Oh, okay. It's great. Isn't it? It's, uh, uh, it's, this movie's kind of like camping. Okay. It's intense. Um, (laughs) David, the the fucking around is over. (laughs) Yeah, this is the character I've landed (laughs) on for this journal. No, um, it's, uh, yeah, that that is exactly what it is, though. It's, it's a, it's a very intense movie. It's kind of. In a way, it's everything. There are so many times I feel like I see a trailer for a movie, and then I come up with a movie in my head that I'm like, "This looks great," and then I go yeah. see the movie, and it's like, "Oh, this wasn't at all the movie." Or yeah. even not even a trailer, just like a description of a movie. Yeah, and I'm like, "Oh, this wasn't one of." Them. I wish I could think of an example at the top of my head right now. I, I can't. But The Shallows was exactly the movie that I was like, you know, Blake Lively stranded on a rock or a buoy, yeah, and a shark this is the movie that I imagined and it was executed pretty much, pretty much perfectly. And um, it's just as schlocky as I want it to be, but also not, um, uh, and I'd read it, uh, like a, a little bit of an interview with, uh, the, the director was Jean Calais Seurat. Yeah, like that. I think so. Um, talking about this, it's not that gory a movie. It's one of those movies that I feel yeah. like after you watch it, reflecting on it, it might feel gorier than it is because a lot of stuff is like suggested, right? You know, but other than like, there's some close-up shots when she gets the initial bite and like sure. her legs pretty fucked up. Um, most of the stuff is kind of just suggested. Like even the guy, the one guy who gets bit in half. Yeah, even it's the dark. framing of that yeah. is like, yeah, it's kind of out of focus and like, yeah, yeah, it's it's like Twilight. What's uh, dawn. It's yeah. dawn, I think, is what time it's supposed to be at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so uh, it, he and he seemed like this was a. It probably helped them keep the PG thirteen that they sure. wanted. But also, he was saying like this. I didn't. That's not the kind of movie that I was making. Like, yeah. it, this is a movie about tension, not about shocks. Yeah, you know. Um, but the shocks are there. Yeah, and they're effective. Um, and even when you know that it's coming, like you know, when those when those guys try to come and save her, you know that like they're not going to last long. But then when they are, and you're correct, by the way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and when they are disposed of, it is still very dramatic and shocking. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then uh, and then I read a whole bunch of stuff into the movie, uh, and I wrote a review of it over at more than one lesson. Oh, I gotta. Um, I gotta read so. that. Um, yeah, and it's it's very. Uh, beautifully shot and color timed. Um, And one thing uh, I'll I'll point out um, that I read in the, I I love to read read the IMDb trivia sections. And a lot of times, as I often always say, you got to take those with a grain of salt. There's no, like I don't know if anyone's vetting those, but there is one that I absolutely believe because I thought at the moment it happened when she's near the end, when she's under the water and the buoy has been tipped over and the buoy like clocks her in the face. Yeah. 
apparently that was that's real. That it really seemed happened. real, and that's yes. exactly in the moment. I was like, that didn't look planned. That looked yeah. like it actually hurt, and that Blake Lively wasn't expecting uh, to get her yeah. cheek split open by that buoy. Um, but yeah. then who does when that happens? Yeah, um, there's some there's some logical inconsistencies uh, or or some like there's some things you have to buy, such sure. as like I don't think there are flare guns stashed on buoys that just doesn't make any sense for what a buoy is why why would it need to be there other than for this exact situation right why would you need a flare gun in a dry box you know 30 yards inland do you know what i mean yeah that's true i mean if it were a little bit far out it's like okay well maybe uh oh the reef is pretty rough maybe uh maybe a ship could go down and people's uh-huh. gonna cling to this buoy yeah this is not far from shore <laughs> right yeah so in fact yeah. it's uh, quite shallow one could say yeah um true. but yeah it's uh i really love the movie and it's you know what uh this may not mean much to to listeners because uh it's been talked about that i have a a large uh, dvd collection but i don't buy movies as much as i used to the shallows might work its way into my collection because i feel yeah. like i would watch it that's uh, what i've been saying about ever yeah. since back this spring when i watched the gore verbinski pirates of the caribbean sequels i also don't buy many but i was like i, n- I need to own those on blu-ray yeah i would watch those yeah like i would definitely throw those in like then there are sometimes there are movies like jack reacher i i, I knew almost immediately i was like i'm buying that blu-ray yeah <laughs> because jack reacher is such an easy movie to just throw on and i do from time to time i tend to feel like that I mean, there are movies where it's obvious, like my favorite movie of the year or whatever. Um, but then there are other movies that are usually a little bit schlocky, but I, I have, they so exceed my expectations. You mentioned what you were talking about, like a movie, you see the trailer or you hear the concept and you think like, okay, I think it's this, like, gosh, I sure hope it is. Mm -hmm. And it rarely is. Yeah. But every once in a while, a movie like, for example, Nerve uh-huh. Which is not a great film by any stretch, but it's so much better than it needs to be. Uh, it, it wound up, uh, it wound up meeting my expectations and in some cases exceeding them. And so I own Nerve. It's on my, uh, it's on my shelf over here. Really? Uh, I should borrow that from you. Me. Should oh you? I think you would love it. I dig it the most. Uh, maybe not the most, oh, but okay. up there. Uh, well, you know what else I dig the most? What's the movie? Uh, a 1971, I think, film uh, by Louis Mal uh, called Murmur of the Heart. Oh, okay. Uh, have you seen it? No, but I've heard great things. Oh, my God. It's so good. It kind of reminds me... Um, well, it kind of reminds me of um, Fellini, um, particularly Amarcord, in that it's about, like, like young boys are just gross. <laughs> you know? Like, they're like preoccupied with sex, and they're little monsters... And it's gross, but it's also... What's wrong with being preoccupied with sex? Um, with, well, a, when you're gross about it. Well, I sure. You yeah. haven't, at, at that point, boys haven't learned the filter of how to like be preoccupied with sex and still be you know, civil. And some people never do yes. learn, learn that, you know? Um, uh, especially on the internet. Uh, yeah, uh, that's not the point. But uh, Murmur of the Heart also kind of reminded me of, like, if one of like Brett Easton Ellis's eighties novels like less than zero or rules of attraction were instead set in 1950s Paris. Hmm. <laughs> like, because it's about like, it's basically just about like these rich shitty kids there and they're awful to their family. And, uh, 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 and like, like the older brothers, um, uh, like just loot their parents. Their parents are very r- rich and they just loot the attic for like, 
Persian rugs and shit and go sell them to buy, sell the rugs and go buy drugs with them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but then, um, there's a, it's one of those movies that like the plot, not, not even really the plot, maybe the premise sort of doesn't set in or the premise changes like halfway through. Um, and you get to the title, Murmur of the Heart, the right. youngest boy who's sort of, I guess, autobiographical for Louis Mal. I didn't I don't know that much about Louis Mal, but, um, is diagnosed with a heart murmur and he and his mother go, he goes to this like facility and he and his mother goes with, so he's staying in a hotel room with his mother for like the second half of the movie. Um, and like the boy's relationship with their mother is already like much closer than it is with their father to mm-hmm. begin with. And it's, this is a movie that like, as it went on, I was like, is this a movie about incest? Like, <laughs> oh, this might be a movie. Like, it sort of sets in yeah. that that's uh, that that is what it's the direction it's heading in. I'm not gonna. Yeah. You can watch it on you know Filmstruck or whatever. Um, I'm not gonna let you know if the if it actually goes full Game of Thrones on the yeah. <laughs> on or the spanking incest. the monkey. Uh, yeah, which I never saw. Oh, it's good. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a it's a really it's a really wonderful uh, movie full of great performances, and also it's very funny and also often very uncomfortable. All right, sounds uh, good. Yeah, you're and up next. I still am up next, yeah. aren't I? Uh, one more. Oh, this couldn't be further from that movie. I okay. I've been in a very been feeling very positively about California's former Republican governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger okay. lately yeah. because of, uh, I, at this point, as, as you know, I've, I've talked about, I'm grasping at any one who is GOP related, who is willing to, uh, uh talk smack about Donald Trump, yeah. you know, and Arnold Schwarzenegger has been, uh, from the beginning, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, no holds barred. Um, no, that's not an that's old a, sort of thing. Yeah, it's but, a different one. <laughs> um, so I decided to watch maybe the, well, I'd seen Pumping Iron. Okay. And I'd seen The Terminator, but the one in between those, the career-making movie for Arnold Schwarzenegger that I'd never seen is Conan the Barbarian. Uh-huh. So I watched Conan the Barbarian. That's a John Milius film, I believe, correct? Yeah, it's not good. Yeah. Have you seen it? Uh, not since I was very young. I remember not caring for it. I don't even, like, that's a th- like... I feel like a part of me is like, this is for young people because it's like so dumb and just like bloody. And there's especially young boys. Cause there's yeah. like, there's hardly a woman, a, there's hardly a female actor in the movie who doesn't appear topless yeah. at some point. Um, uh, but, um, so in that way it appeal, it would appeal to children, but it's also so fucking dull. This movie, <laughs> it's two hours and 20 minutes long or something. It's like way too long. Huh. I don't think I remember it minutes. being boring when I was yeah, young, maybe, but maybe, maybe when we were kids, we were just like yeah. fascinated by easily fascinated by stuff. But it, uh, I found it uncomfortable it, though. I, I, I didn't, I, I didn't care for it. I didn't enjoy it. Uh, I don't know. Um, uh, I, I I didn't enjoy it either, um, yeah. but uh, uh, yeah, I don't know what it, it's one of those. It's not exactly like um, three hundred, where it's like uh, where the movie's philosophy like makes me uncomfortable, right? But there is some of that in the in the way that it's kind of like uh, there's a lot of like this self-determinism about the Conan character that's kind of like Randian a little bit but also like Nietzschean um and there's a good opens with a quote from Nietzsche so uh um and then also it's always like 
it, much like in 300 it's weird like when the only like like james earl jones is the bad guy and he's right. like the you can't trust him like sort of mystical like foreign exotic and he's like he's the black guy in the movie yeah. and so it has a little bit of maybe i'm maybe i'm carrying that over from 300 because 300 is like right is like is so clearly like uh divided between like light skin characters are good yeah. and dark skin characters are bad um but uh it did make me it made me uncomfortable those, those probably aren't the same reasons it made you uncomfortable as a boy probably not but no. uh yeah I, I i didn't didn't really enjoy it i could see also uh not to defend a movie that i don't like uh but i could see it being a situation where it's like yes james earl jones is black but he is also darth vader and so <laughs> yeah, you cast darth true. vader if you can that's true um yeah. as a and there is one really, i don't know if you remember the one really cool part when he james earl jones like to demonstrate his power to conan the power he has over his because he's essentially a cult leader mm. is he has a woman jump to her death he just like i don't i don't remember that but you know what that would have made me uncomfortable as a kid that would have freaked me out yeah it is that is free it's one of the few very uh, yeah. effective parts of the movie and apparently again according to the imdb trivia page um broke a record at the time for the longest free fall stunt because she interesting from a very high cliff and they follow her all the way down then they clearly like she smashes through some boards that are probably just styrofoam and right, right. there's like a probably a you know a big mattress underneath there yeah. or whatever but uh it's, it's, it was an impressive stunt hmm. um at universal we, studios there was a conan the barbarian stunt show uh, we should do for many years uh, we need to have a stunt man on the podcast on the maiden podcast i, I just met one at my church literally okay. this past sunday we need to talk because i've one of my pet causes for years has been that there should be a best stunts category at the mm-hmm. Oscars, especially like in recent, um, well, just a few couple weeks ago, a stunt woman died on the set of Deadpool two. There was then, a, this guy that I was talking to that I met for yeah. the first time. Uh, that was a friend of his, as it turns out. Okay. So it was very sad. Um, and yeah. And then there were a few months ago, there was a, was it the walking dead or fear of the walking dead? One of those walking dead shows. There yeah. was a stunt man who died. Um, there's always, I always think about movies like, um, like triple X, Mm-hmm. Like a stuntman died making triple X. Yeah. And so is it like a part of me, if a stuntman dies when you make a movie, when, when you're making a movie, like any movie, even if it's whether it's shitty or good, like a part of me is like, should you just not release the movie? Or is that then like right. making it all for nothing? Cause like a stuntman also died, um, in the making of the right stuff, which is a movie that I, that I yeah. love one of the, but a stunt pilot died. I think maybe it's, maybe it's, uh, based on the movie. It's like, all right, I'm happy to die during uh, the right stuff. Right. Vampire in Brooklyn? <laughs> Maybe not Where so a stunt woman also died? <laughs> um, yeah. That's a that's a brutal one, too, if you read about it. I, I occasionally go down that rabbit hole because I want to be like, I should know about this. I should know their stories. Sure, sure. But then I get really like uncomfortable, and I don't think I... I've never seen Vampire in Brooklyn. I don't think I ever could watch it now, knowing yeah. that. And I was never going to watch Triple X again. Anyway, I saw it the once. Yeah, <laughs> you got it. Uh, did I have anything else to say about Conan, or did you? Well, I want to talk a bit about John Milius, um, okay. who is... There was a documentary made about him uh, a few years ago called Simply Milius. Um, and, of course, uh, he just kind of shows up in Hollywood lore. Uh, he's... 
a lot of people know him as the the inspiration for Walter in The Big Lebowski. Right. Um, and then he was one of those guys that just kind of bounced around uh, in the 1970s and was friends with everybody. Uh, and, help, you know, he contributed things to Jaws. He contributed things to Apocalypse Now. Like, he uh, made Conan and Red Dawn and a few other things. And he was insane. He was an absolute maniac. Yeah. And one of my favorite stories about him is that uh, he was known for carrying a sidearm. Um, <laughs> and uh, so he was at a party. Oh, and then like certain types of, uh, and he's, he didn't consider himself right leaning. He considered himself completely anarchist. Uh, and so he made a lot of uh, left leaning people uncomfortable uh-huh. by how brazen he was. And so Pauline Kale is at a party and she knows John Milius is at the party. And so uh, she sends someone to go get him and say, uh, Hey, Miss Kale would like to talk to you, but she wants to make sure she wanted me to make sure you're not armed. And Melia says, you tell Miss Kale that I am not armed, but that I myself am a weapon. (laughs) 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 So I don't know if they hung out after that, but, uh, but that phrase is, is so perfect. It's a great documentary. I highly recommend it. Um, he also created the, the HBO show Rome. He did, yes. You know, yes. How, long, you know how long it took him? A day. <laughs> um, do you know the story about uh, Deadwood and Rome? Do you know about... Uh, no. Like, HBO is having a meeting with David Milch to, like, we want to be in the David Milch business. He comes back with the pitch. He's like, I want to I, I tell a story about how humans sort of inevitably develop civilization and rule of law where there isn't one mm-hmm. out of nowhere. So I got the story and I want to set it in ancient Rome and they were yeah. like, we have this, this show with John Millie's. We have an ancient Rome show. Could you do this somewhere else? He was like, let me think about it. So he went away for a little bit and came back and he was like, I can tell the same story in Deadwood. <laughs> <laughs> That's apparently how Deadwood came to be. See, I like <laughs> the idea that at the moment he's like, Oh, I, you're, um, uh, did I say Rome? I meant, uh, um, and then just <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, we're just, done with Conan. Okay. Um, what's so, next for you? All right. What's first for me? Um, is I want to make sure I've got the name right. Okay. So, uh, director Doug Nickel made a documentary called California typewriter. Oh, I was just reading about this. It is marvelous. Oh, cool. And it is okay. You know, we've, we've done episodes about chase. Mm -hmm. Okay. Should we stop? Nope. Okay. Um, all right, everybody. Uh, if you're keen eared listeners might know, that we just mentioned mentioned a street that I live on, so oh, keep well, an eye out for that. Um, it's a long street; it's fine. And also, I didn't like nothing I said would have said that that was a street. Oh, because because <laughs> it could have been like, oh, there's this guy named Chase. Yeah. Is that him? Yeah, it's not him. Um, anyway, so now you said that. Yeah, but that's all right. All right, come on and say hi. Please don't. Please don't. So um, anyway, uh, so we've done episodes about like the the special interest or mm-hmm. the, or the, the, what is it? Personal interest? Is that human, what it was called? Interest. human interest. Thank you. Uh, human interest documentaries that cover something that people find interesting or whatever. And they're fun, but they're also not that compelling. Uh, California typewriter is very compelling. Uh, the director has a history in, uh, music videos and I think that shows because it definitely has a stronger visual sense than most films like it. Uh, he interviews some very interesting people including uh, uh, Sam Shepard and oh. uh, uh, 
was name David David McCullough. Uh, is that his name? Who is that? I might be wrong. I think it's who who wrote uh, John Adams the book. Oh, that sounds right. Okay, yeah, I that think that's him. Right. Uh, Tom Hanks, uh, John Mayer, and then a number of and it never actually identifies anybody by name, but there are people that you just recognize. Um, and so it follows a few things. There are a couple story threads. One is about this small typewriter repair shop in the San Francisco area, um, and just people trying to struggling to keep it open and all of that. Uh, and then it's because it's not merely, Hey, look at all these people that like this thing, you know, and isn't Tom Hanks charming as he takes us through his collection. It's not merely that. And you know, let's suffer through John Mayer. Um, John Mayer actually brings something into the movie that I think the film then takes off and, and, and ju- uses that as a jumping off point where he talks about, um, with a typewriter versus, uh, you know, a word processor on your computer that he would find that as he was writing songs and regardless of what you might think of John Mayer's songs, like, you know, he's a creative person as, and as he's writing his songs, he would, you know, see a little, the little red squiggly line. Oh, I, I misspelled something. Uh, just a typo as he's typing through uh, on his computer. Mm-hmm. And he said that like, all right, well, I guess I'll just go through and change it. And now that becomes what it's about. And he said, whereas he goes, if you look through the paper on my typewriter that I've, you know, once I started using typewriter and you look at these pieces of paper and he shows you like, he's like, he would just types a lyric over and over again with different variations, trying to figure out the one that works. And he said on a computer, I've just delete it. And then just keep and write it until it works. And there, but there is no process. You don't see it. Uh, you don't see the the physicalization of the process of creativity. And he said that, like with with his typewriter, it just. He said it actually seems to uh, facilitate creativity more so than a word processor. And so um, it was very interesting. And mm. and they 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 go on from there, uh, to talk about what the appeal of this is. Um, and it, re- it, it is just doing it wrong. It's very charming. It's not a remarkably challenging film, but, uh, one thing that I enjoy getting out of it that, you know, the best human interest documentaries can do is get you to look at something a different way and get you to appreciate that thing in a way that never would have occurred to you otherwise. Mm-hmm. And then realize that there are entire, you know, swaths of people that, have devoted a lot of time and money to this yeah. thing because they love it so much. And so I highly recommend it. I don't know what the release schedule is, but, um, I think it's in New York already. So if you live, you live, what, in, you live, in, you live in New York, you in this week's LA weekly, which makes you think it's okay. in Los Angeles this weekend. Oh yeah. Cause, oh yeah. Cause, uh, I spoke with the, I saw it as a function of my internship. So I spoke right. with the director afterwards and he, um, he said that, yeah, in LA, I think they were pushing until after Labor Day, but I guess maybe it's, it's just this weekend. Okay. So anyway, um, check it out. It's very yeah. good. I will say, sounds like John Mayer, like there's no reason you can't do that on a computer. Well, sure. But, uh, other people often, they don't say it exactly that way, but they do also talk yeah. about the, the sort of in the moment and, oh, you're stuck with this, um, 
you're stuck with this thing that you wrote. Uh, and then Tom Hanks says that like, maybe what he'll do if he's writing like a note, a thank you note to someone, he'll always type it on a typewriter and literally send it to them because it feels more real. Uh, and he says like, you know, if I make a mistake, I'll just go back and just put X's over it and then I'll just keep going and people know that <clears> I made a mistake and that's okay. And so it was, yeah. it was, it was, it was a very interesting. Um, okay. So I watched, okay, here's the thing with me. I, okay. I used to have this podcast called, Hey, watch this. Mm-hmm. No, I did, but no, this is actually going back to a podcast I had called Previously On. Indeed. Where my co-host Sean and I talked a lot about The Sopranos. In fact, we did like a, I don't even remember, like six-hour multi-part, like episode-by-episode, or uh, did we go episode-by-episode? We might have gone episode-by-episode breakdown of The Sopranos. Um, That's a lot of episodes. Yeah, uh, it might have even taken us longer. It's like we broke it up into three parts, and we just talked about The Sopranos we're both big Sopranos fans. And one thing that we both always said is the Sopranos is something that everyone knows is great and yet still feels somehow underrated. Yes. And I've often, I've also said that in music about the band black Sabbath, like everyone knows black Sabbath. Yeah, it's a great band. They made Iron Man and paranoid, but I feel like people don't really give them enough respect. Coincidentally, the director I feel that way about directed the movie black Sabbath and that's okay. Mario Bava. Oh, okay. I feel like people know, but I feel like people put him in the sort of the, the, the bucket of being a horror sure. director and don't give him respect for being one of the all time greats. And I, um, have already felt that way. And I feel that way even more now after I watched a movie from 19, 1973 called Lisa and the devil. Okay. Um, and it's about this woman, her name's Lisa. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's, uh, it sounds like she's not alone though. It sounds like she <laughs> encounters someone well, along she is, the way. At the beginning, she's vacationing alone. She's part of like a tour group or whatever in Spain, I think somewhere in Spain. And she's, uh, the, the very opening scene, she's being there. There's a tour guide and they're looking at this big mural, this like fresco mm-hmm. of Satan in this town square somewhere in, in, in Spain. And she's like staring at this Satan. And then she sort of is pulled, drawn away from the group and goes into this little sort of curiosity shop where there's a man buying a life-size ventriloquist dummy. And, oh. the, <laughs> <yeah>. oh. <laughs> um, and the man... Why did you keep watching? <laughs> the man looks exactly like... Not the doll, but the man looks exactly like Satan in the fresco. Okay. And oh, by the way, it's Telly Savalas. Oh, man, um, there we go. Uh, and um, so she gets, like, freaked out. She runs out of the shop and suddenly she's still in the same town, but suddenly it's different. Like there are fewer people around. Mm. No one seems to be able to willing to help her get her way back to the square. So she's wandering around this sort of hostile sparse city. And then she finds a group of other people who are also lost and they together end up at an old mansion where they're welcomed in by the, this, uh, uh, I guess, um, eccentric wealthy widow and her eccentric weirdo son and their butler, who by the way is Telly Savalas. In a dual role or nope. the same guy? Same guy. Okay, got it. Same guy. Um, turns out, yeah, he. this is the thing that he does. Uh, at one point, we see him, his like his quarters at the, in the house is full of life-size ventriloquist dummies. <laughs> There's so much creepy shit going on. Also, the whole thing about uh, Telly Savalas and the sucker, the lollipop, yeah. which is from Kojak, I guess. He, I, think he, I think this came out after... But he did it. I think this is apparently where it started because he was basically he was just trying to quit smoking at the time. And that's and so he just always had a lollipop in his mouth. And so he has a lollipop in his mouth throughout this movie. 
Um, yeah. There's something about, so, you know, when you're interrogating suspects, that's uh-huh. one thing, but there's something about like picking out a life-size ventriloquist dummy while sucking on a lollipop <laughs> yeah. and your Telly Savalas. And you're maybe possibly Satan. Sure. Um, yeah. And a butler. Oh boy. Uh, Sounds he, great though. It is. By the way, Telly Savalas should have won a fucking Oscar. He's so good in this movie. Uh, even though he's not, he's not the lead. Um, Basically, a bunch of creepy shit happens in this mansion. I don't want to spoil any of it. Right. Um, but it is, it is a terrific, beautiful, scary, and also fun and funny movie. Mm-hmm. That's something else Mario Bava doesn't like get enough credit for his movies having a sense of humor about them, mm-hmm. I think, because people just think of him as this horror director. Um, but I, I don't know about this. In, uh, there was a... Uh, Blu-ray review I did a year years ago, which I recently repurposed as one of our Monday movies uh, of a Mario Bava film called Evil Eye, mm. um, and where I write about like the whole opening, like the whole like opening of this woman traveling to Italy on the plane is like a comic set piece of just all these different weirdos on the plane with her, <laughs> and um, uh, this one also Telly Savalas brings a lot of the humor. Um, not that he's a comic actor, but he, you know what I mean. He has, he has sort a, of a, he has a sensibility. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a terrific, uh, terrific movie. Um, and so inspired by it was I, that even though I had planned to go to bed after watching it, because it was one thirty in the morning when I was done watching it, uh, and I was on, um, uh, watching it on, on, on Fandor. Um, I, I, I saw that Fandor also had black Sunday. So I did a rewatch of black Sunday. So this one I'd seen before. I think I right. just said uh, this is a, a, a rewatch, um, but it's uh, uh, also a. Uh, I mean, this is really Mario Bava's like first big movie, um, nineteen sixty, I guess, uh, and it's uh, it's uh, it's astounding how accomplished he is. I mean, he worked as a cinematographer, um, and you can tell he's very comfortable with with the camera. Um, giving these the you know the woods or the uh, um, the sort of uh, ruined cathedral where uh, a, a lot of the action early on and then again later uh, takes place, giving them this this depth um, even when the camera's still, but also being able to move the camera through these areas um, very uh, grandly, but not. Uh, ostentatiously, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's it was really interesting to go like after seeing after watching Lisa and the Devil, which was thirteen years later, uh, to go back and see um, now this one. You know, Black Sundays in black and white, and Lisa and the Devil is in color. But uh, seeing how how good he was so early, yeah. You know, I don't know if I've ever seen a Mario Bava film. Now that I think about it, well, Black Sunday is a good place to start. Yeah. Um, and actually, yeah. I think I just read something by our friend Amy Nicholson when she was talking about, or maybe, I don't know if she just wrote it, but I saw it. It was shared. She was talking about like the people that laugh. Oh yes. That's that like was, an older yeah, article, that, was, that right? was from a year or two ago. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, and she was seeing a Mario Baba thing, but like with a live orchestra or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That is, it's a, uh, it, it's a problem. People yeah. laughing at old movies. Yeah. Uh, I feel like uh, they're, I, I can't remember what Amy said about it. I remember it being a, a very good article, but I think yeah. people are like, uh, on guard or cautious about how earnest old movies are. 
In, I guess it's that. I don't know. I can't quite place it. I mean, you know what's interesting is that, as you know, I hate the recognition laugh. I hate the. Sure, yeah, yeah. I, I hate that. But I would take that any day because at least there's affection there. Uh, the person is happy to be seeing what's on screen as opposed to the people who just think that they are better than that yeah. and that they, you know, it's because I, I saw a couple. Um, I saw a couple uh, movies in the park in Chicago, and I think one of them was um, one of them was The Apartment, which is you know a funny movie, but there's some drama in there, and yeah. so there's a scene where the character has tried to uh, kill herself, and so and the doctor is like slapping her in the face and that kind of thing to try to get her to wake up and all that, and people in the audience were laughing. Now I'm sure I, I'll put some of it down to discomfort, but like. The laughter and I taught and the people that I was with, they didn't laugh, but they ex- they explained to me later why they thought other people were laughing. They're like, no doctor would ever do that now. Like that's it just seems like such a relic of the time. Oh, OK. And so I was just like, huh, I guess so. Like in my mind, it's like this woman's going to die. Slap right. her in the face. Like, I know that sounds weird, but like if it's between that and she succumbs to this suicide attempt, then that's what you do. Like all I'm seeing is the raw emotion in that moment, yeah. not like the protocol, you know? I think, um, not to, I don't want to sound like I'm being elitist cause I don't mean it that way, but I just mean people like you and me who watch a fair amount of old movies, yeah. maybe have enough experience that maybe we find it easier to slip into the time. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think so. Um, so yeah, you're right. I, I'm with you. That wouldn't have occurred to me either, but I think you're in retrospect that your friends are probably absolutely right. That's yeah. probably why they were right. And that everyone else was wrong. That's my, well, they didn't say they were wrong, but like they were right in latching on to just why but, those people yeah. were wrong. But I don't see, I don't, I don't see it that way. I don't think I'm fine to be elitist at this moment. Were, if you want. As, but yeah, I don't think they were essentially wrong. Uh, it would be jarring to see that now. It would be, but I, I do find myself wondering, like, would I respond with laughter? But I guess if someone's well, not if you uncomfortable, saw in real life, you wouldn't. Sure, be like, yeah, Stop. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to need to see your degree. Yes, this is, you can't have learned this in medical school. And I guess when you think about it, like, think of how it, that must have been kind of a common practice in film, because when you think about airplanes, yeah, that's the, like that's what it's all about. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I wonder how many like people went to medical school. <laughs> you know how some people now's my chance. Like in Jack Reacher, he talks about some people who joined the army because they just want to kill people. Yeah, how many people do you think saw movies and went to medical school because they just wanted to slap women? I would say in the area of seventy eight percent. All right, um, change of pace for my next movie. Okay. Um, I saw. I uh, watched the documentary. It's available on Netflix um, uh, from a few years ago called seeds of time. Um, and it's one of these great movies that's seems super specific, but once you get into it, you're like, this is vital. This is very important. Yeah. And it's basically this guy. Um, the main focus is this guy, uh, Dr. Kerry Fowler, who, uh, runs a thing. They're based in Rome. Um, I can't remember what they're called. Uh, but basically he's talking about how there's a diversity of, seeds and grains and for food that mm-hmm. are natural in the world. But literally thousands of years of farming has made like farmers have, you know, defensively, defensively they have chosen to stick with 
well, this one is a high yield. This is going to be the best for me. You know, we focus on these. So certain other strains of wheat or whatever have, um, many of them have gone extinct. Others have, have, have dwindled. Um, and it makes sense. But what it does, this, this lack of gene diversity or seed diversity Mm. uh, to use his term means that, um, they are, uh, those those crops are now more susceptible to a new disease or something or uh, changes in the weather, which obviously are happening right now. And it, basically with with climate change and um, the drastically increased population and a number of other uh, factors, but climate change being the main one, we have sort of a what he describes as like a perfect storm of like it's possible that entire types of food could go extinct if we don't watch it um hmm. this is he doesn't talk about this in the movie but this is essentially what happened to bananas i don't know if you know about this like the bananas that our grandparents maybe even our parents ate mm-hmm. tasted different than the banana, bananas that we eat because basically the most popular strain of banana fell became extinct due to a disease in like the 1970s hmm. and so maybe this is why i don't like bananas because we're dealing with now an, in, an inferior tasting type of banana <laughs> yeah, but you don't know the difference. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I was never. But uh, this this isn't mentioned in the movie. But that's a, apparently a true story that I would that it made me think of. Um, but anyway, so this guy. Uh, I mean, it's not. He's just the guy that you know. It's it helps to have a central sure. subject in a movie. But it really his group. That I forget, I'm forgetting the name of because I watched this like two weeks ago. Um, uh, has a, a, a thing, a massive complex in um, Norway, I think, built like 200 feet into the side of of, uh, of, of, a, of a mountain that's just like a room, like huge cavernous rooms made of ice that they just store seeds in. Mm-hmm. All different, and like a lot of different, a lot of different countries or cities already have their own gene vaults, seed vaults. Um, they call they, the names seem to be interchangeable. It seems like gene vault is just a fancy way of saying what they really are, which is they're full of seeds. Um, <laughs> but they try what they try to do is get like a a duplication. Like, can you send us send us half of what you have? Yeah, and we'll store it in Norway, where even you know, worst case scenario, climate change. Like in two hundred years, this is still going to be ice. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like this is this is a place we can you know, we can make more food from this place if we need it. Uh, if we get into a, you know, an interstellar type situation where yeah. all the crops are dying. Um, and w- in case in point, this is like, uh, fascinating and very sad. Like the movie was shot in 2012. And so they were in the middle of the, the uh, Carrie Fowler and his, um, and his group were in the middle of negotiating with a seed vault in like the main one in Thailand when Bangkok like flooded and mm. there are tons of like, uh, strains or species we're going to call them of rice that don't exist anymore because of the flooding in 2012 in Bangkok. They were just kept in this vault and they were literally like in the process of negotiating, uh, getting a duplicate like yeah. uh, of everything um, to keep in the Norway seed vault when uh natural disaster hit. And we there's so there's types of rice that people, that human beings will never eat again now uh, because of that. Um, it's a, a fascinating documentary. Uh, and D- Dr. Kerry Fowler, there's a reason they focus on him. He's a very personable and sort of, uh, he's a Southerner. He's from one of the Carolinas. Uh, and he just got the sort of soft-spoken and very kind and gentle. Like, mm-hmm. to, like he's, uh, it's, it's, the movie's like 75 minutes and, uh, about a really fascinating subject. What was uh, the name again? Seeds of Time. Seeds of Time. Interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. You don't think in terms of it, like obviously with extinction, we think in terms of animals. Um, yeah. But anything that is alive or could be alive can go extinct. So right. yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and we've, you know, um, again, through no fault of really through perfectly defensible measures, we have made it more likely for things to go to extinct because right. we've reduced seed diversity. Right. <laughs> you will hear the words seed diversity more times in your life. If you watch these 75 minutes than you would ever think two words, I never would have put together in the first place. <laughs> yeah. And now you can't get away from it. Um, okay. So I saw Taylor Sheridan's wind river. Um, have you seen it yet? I have not. No, it is. Okay. So I think, I think I am, I think I am a sucker for Taylor Sheridan at this point. Really? Um, there are things that I really respond to about Sicario. Um, I really like Taylor High Water. And then he wrote and directed Wind River. And he definitely, he just has, I have compared him in the past to Russell Banks. And I think every time I see a, a film of his, uh, I think that more and more. And this is no exception. Just movies about, working class people or middle class people or, and often people are just sort of cast aside by society and there's Mm -hmm. nothing, there's, there's no more, there's no more cast aside group than native Americans. Um, and so it takes place on this Indian reservation. And I think Sheridan does a really good job of establishing the place. Um, that's funny. I never would have thought of Russell Banks because I think of Taylor Sheridan as a crime guy. Yeah first but you're absolutely right yeah there is often death and sometimes a crime uh in a russell banks novel it's just that's usually the thing that sets off like character yeah, yeah. and and atmosphere um and so so there's just there's this odd um death that seems to be uh basically this girl is found in the snow and she, her lungs have burst because she is that's what happens when you are running through this in, in like sub-zero temperatures and you're breathing heavily and like you know capillaries is that a word it's a word it's a word i don't know what it refers okay. to but something in your lungs uh freezes and then explodes and so um but everyone realizes, like, well, she's out in the middle of nowhere. She's clearly running from something. Like, mm-hmm. we need to list this as a murder. And so, uh, so I don't know. The, the way that they uncover it is very is very much my kind of procedural, where stuff is being exposed about the main characters as well. Stuff is being exposed about or explored about the world of the Indian reservation. It's one, as always, it's wonderful to see Graham green. Oh yeah. Um, Gil Birmingham is in it, of oh, course. Cool. Um, and, uh, and it's just my, my, so in my family, like the various youth groups that we're a part of, we, uh, we would go on like missions trips. Now it's, it's odd because one of my missions, I wonder if maybe it was, was Taylor Sheridan in my youth group because one of my, uh, sorry, three of my mission trips were to Juarez, Mexico. So there's Sicario. And then my brother went on one to a Navajo reservation and just the stuff that he came back talking about. It was just very, it's very harrowing. And there's a lot of wind river that is very harrowing, including, uh, it, it actually throws up some interesting statistics, uh, at the end of the film that don't seem to have anything to do with this, 
but of course it has everything to do with it. Um, but it's just a, it's a very stark film. And once the plot gets going, I think some people, uh, are turned off by it, but I think he does a good job laying the groundwork and establishing characters. Jeremy Renner, it's nice to be reminded how strong an actor he can be. And Elizabeth Olsen is someone that I already knew was good, but, and of course, and I haven't even seen, uh, anger goes West. Mm, yeah. Um, but Martha Marcy may Marlene, I thought she was great in, and then I even, I like her in the Avengers movies. Uh, but this movie really helps me to realize, like, I think she is, would you say she's a star? I don't, I don't know. Think- I don't, I, I like, I mean, I don't think I'm trying to think like, I'm trying to think of, like people I know, in my family, maybe who aren't like movie people, right. I don't think they know the name Elizabeth Olsen. Yeah, I don't think I don't think anybody, even despite uh, the Age of Ultron. Yeah, yeah, they maybe they would know Scarlet Witch or whatever. Um, but yeah, uh, she deserves to be, and I think uh, I think you and I talked about this uh, off mic, or maybe I was telling somebody else that I do think for a number of reasons, not merely because she played an FBI agent in Wind River. But I definitely feel like if she, if somebody were to remake Silence of the Lambs, she'd make a wonderful Agent Starling. And that got me thinking, like, mm. there is kind of a Jodie Foster quality to her That's in true. general in the stuff that I've seen. Although, you know who I would have thought of first? Who's that? Numi Rapace. Or Rapace. And she, a little, she seems a little, because Starling is supposed to be notably younger in silence of the lambs right she's like uh how old do you think Numi Rapace is or Rapace? uh maybe she's because younger than we are right probably but i guess maybe because like, I we're think young of her we're millennials i think you and i actually i think it's been established that there's like a five-year period in between gen x and millennials and you and i fall into that i don't know most every study i've read or polling group that i've looked up starts it in like Eighty to eighty-two. The, as but then I, I know your Survivor people started in eighty-four. Uh, yeah, but they're not. I don't, I don't count them. But at the same time, like anytime somebody describes like the nature of the millennial, and I don't mean like emotional, but I mean like the stuff they grew up with and the stuff they like. Like when people describe millennials, is like people that grew up with the internet. It's like, well, I had it when I was, I guess, thirteen or fourteen. Like. Huh. I remember a time before it. Okay. And I feel like that is not necessarily. That's interesting. I, I hadn't thought about that part of it, but whenever I read about like millennials are like this, millennials don't like this. They're right. killing this. It's all stuff. It's like, yep, that's me. I don't, you know, uh, millennials don't answer the doorbell. I don't answer the doorbell. That was a new one. I don't know if you read that. I have not read that one. Yeah. I, was, I read the, stuff. I think that... the story was ask not for whom the doorbell tolls. They won't answer. That was the headline. <laughs> so you read but, that headline and you read the rest of the article. And I read the rest of the article. You've, okay. Because I was like, yes, that's me. I won't answer a doorbell uh, because uh, it's weird at this point. We have text messages like, it, like if someone's arrived at my place, they'll have texted me beforehand or I'll be expecting them. Do you know what I mean? For some other yeah. reason. But like, and apparently this has become such a thing that UPS now um, trains its 
drivers to like they still always ring the doorbell, mm-hmm. but unless they need a signature, they don't wait anymore. Uh, boy, that has uh, that's definitely been the case. Like in moving to our new place, I feel like we get uh, and Jen establishing her office. Uh, I feel like we get a package every day, and like I, I'll just go out and so I don't know. There's some on the on the front porch, I guess. Oh well, uh, and, yeah, that's uh, what they do because apparently so many young people. Yeah. You know, like us, sure. um, don't answer the doorbell. What else? Applebee's is closing locations because yeah. of millennials. So I, I read through that <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I must not be a millennial because I like Applebee's. I prefer Chili's. Uh, but I've um, never been to a Chili's. There's one in Ventura in, in Encino. You and I can go sometime. It'll sure. be lots of fun. I love it. I like chain restaurants. I've never been to a Chili's though. Oh my gosh, you're missing out. I mean, kind of. You know, Applebee's. I don't remember. I know I've been to it, but I don't remember feeling very strongly about it. It's fine. It's not terrible. But like when they said that, like they don't eat cereal, I don't eat cereal. Oh, I, I can't let myself eat cereal because it's just, it's all carbs, but huh. boy, I wish I could. I if I, think... if I like, See, uh, I, I, I'm more millennial than you. I guess so. I think we found out where the cutoff is. It's in that less than a year. <laughs> or no, is it more? You were born in 81. 82, February 82. Okay, so, so it's less yeah. than a year. It's yeah. that, in that seven-month yeah. gap. I was September 82. That's okay. when millennialhood starts. So right around July. That's probably about right. 82. I think, I think we've nailed it. But yeah. Um, but yeah uh, I'm totally millennial. Uh, I'm millennial AF. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sit on it. That's what I say. Um, I was I was grasping for anything yeah. that was older than that. I was like twenty three skidoo's too old. Um, so um, yeah, I highly recommend Wind River. I think it's uh, oh right, it's, that's what we were talking about. Yeah. not the fact that I'm definitely a millennial. Right. Uh, I love those. those it, it is a very good movie. I, I highly recommend and see it on the big screen if you can because I think it's it's shot very well. Um, and I meant to look up how old Newmere Paces or Pass uh, versus Elizabeth Olsen. She seems older to me, maybe because like I've only seen her in certain circumstances. Like I see, I've seen her in, you know, Prometheus, and you know she's a uh, she's like a space person. Uh, she's like in some level of she has like authority, and I was like, well, I don't have any authority, so surely she must be older than me. But I'm sure she is younger. Yes. Um, okay. Um, anyway, uh, I love to read articles about things that millennials are killing. And mostly I'm like, haha, those things are dumb. But then apparently millennials are like casinos. Oh boy. And I've noticed, I literally have noticed this because there's a lot of casinos in Las Vegas where you now have to pay to park. And it used to be, that was one of the things about Las mm-hmm. Vegas is you know, to pay to park anyway, because they're taking so much of your money. Yeah. They're like, just come in, park, leave your car yeah. here for two weeks. We don't give a fuck. But now you have to pay to park. Mm. Uh, millennials do not like that. Um, wow. Numeria Pass is older than I thought she was. She's older than both of us. Not both of us, but together. But she is older than either of <laughs> us. Is. She's 37 years old. 37, see? Yeah. Well, she looks fantastic. She can't, she can't be you know no uh, Clarice Starling. look fantastic. I know a couple 35-year-olds that look pretty good. Yeah, I'm not a 35-year-old. Oh, damn it. <laughs> oh, you fucking millennials. Yeah, I'm a little kid <laughs> compared to you. Uh, um, all right. Uh, speaking of little kids, I watched a little kids movie, uh, a French animated film that's been redubbed uh, and released called Leap. It has oh. an exclamation point in it. I didn't know it was. Re- okay, that's interesting. That yeah, explains yeah. why. I was looking it up and I saw that it was listed as like 2016. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now um, I get it. 
It's uh, it's unfortunately not not very good. Uh, it's the it takes place in the late eighteen hundreds, uh, where these two orphans, a girl and a boy, uh, escape the orphanage to go to Paris because she wants to be a ballet dancer. Sorry, a ballerina is what the word is for that. Uh, and he wants to be an inventor. And they run away to Paris, and literally within twenty four hours. She has gotten herself into ballet school and he has gotten himself a job as the assistant to um, uh, Gustav Eiffel, <laughs> who's building the Eiffel Tower and apparently building the Statue of Liberty at the same time, which is not. That's dubious. Those things didn't yeah. happen at the same time. <laughs> um, but, um, uh, so, I mean, I, you know, some suspension of disbelief is fine. It's, you know, a kid's movie. But, um, uh, that that stuff doesn't, doesn't bother me. It's just that it's so it's so varied by the numbers, um, and the voice, the vocal performances uh, from the uh, American cast. Even though you've got a good cast, you got Elle Fanning, okay. uh, Nat Wolf. I don't know much about him. I remember him being in the Fault in Our Stars, but he's the 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 boy. Uh, Kate McKinnon in a triple role, uh, but she's doing different voices for everyone. Sure. So I didn't, I didn't realize until the end credits that it was her. Uh, who else? Carly Rae Jepsen, pop star, Carly Rae Jepsen. Uh, okay. Uh, Mel Brooks is a voice. Oh, all right. Um, uh, but it's just, it's just very, very by the numbers. Um, it also gets bogged down in a dumb love triangle, which I've had enough of yeah. like in two, on two levels, like the love triangle in general is, nine times out of 10 now is just, uh, plugging in the characters to this sort of right. already, uh, uh, established trope where it's like, I don't care. He's, she's obviously not going to end up with that guy or yeah. whatever. Um, but also this is like, um, uh, I feel like I want as someone who has any, as a kid had friends who were girls, mm-hmm. it's okay to, for two characters to just be friends it doesn't have to like be revealed that he's secretly been pining for her this whole time. Like I rolled my eyes as soon as it happened. Like, can't they just be good friends? Can they just be best friends? Is there anything wrong with that? Why do you think, what, why do you think the love triangle, particularly when it's like one woman and two men, like, yeah. Which or in this is, case, uh, one girl and two boys. One girl, two boys. Pardon yeah. me. Um, I'm just no, no, no reason to say pardon me. I'm just saying in this case because I've seen the movie and you haven't. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, but it, okay, and actually, actually, that does that applies more because it's something that seems to be prevalent in movies that are for younger audiences, whether it be you know stuff based on a YA novel or or this. What is it about the love triangle that is so not maybe not crucial but it's just it's so identified with like a younger audience is it the inherent melodrama and it's people who feel more melodramatic things at the time yeah that could be it um i tend to be a little more cynical about it okay i think it's like it's given who you know creative types are i feel like it's like male screenwriters who had trouble with girls and are working out like their issues of the girls. They liked being into other guys. When they oh, were kids. I see. That's I what see. I feel. Okay. Like, I'm going to write this thing where this other guy is going to represent the guy that the girl I had a crush on in middle school was actually into, but 
then I'm going to write it where she eventually chooses me. I mean, this guy. <laughs> okay. Uh, but that's me being cynical. I will meet your cynicism with more cynicism. But maybe this is a, a more understandable cynicism, which is from a female standpoint, for, for the viewer, it's ultimately like, wouldn't you love to be her? <laughs> you got, you've got these two hunks uh, yeah. just fi- willing to fight each other over you. I mean, not like in life, obviously, but here in this world, <laughs> right. you know, uh, so I think there's, so it is there's plenty kinds to be, of wish fulfillment, which is, gross. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So yeah, that's why. Uh, and then the last thing I'll say about leap is that the very end of the movie goes completely nuts in a way that I really enjoyed. But by then it was like you, too little, too, too late. little, too late, but it like literally has like a flying contraption and like a, this like rich woman trying to actually murder the two kids. Like it goes so off the rails, uh, that, that I, uh, I, I was like, why couldn't the movie have been fun this whole time? Yeah. This is so stupid, but this is fun. It betrays its French roots. Yeah. Where it's just like, I oh, will just do what we want. Uh, yeah. This one wants to kill them. That's my terrible <laughs> French accent. I'm sorry. Uh, okay. Last, these are two movies that are in theaters. Uh, in some theaters, uh, Los Angeles theaters this week. Um, one is Jay Baruchel's featured directorial debut, Goon, Last of the Enforcers. Um, and I'm disappointed to say that it's not really worth um, going out of your way for. And you're a fan of that first one. I'm a huge fan of Goon. Goon, I think, uh, this is me being a millennial. Okay, yeah. Hang on, let me, let me rearrange my thinking <laughs> and try to understand. Got it. Um, Hockey, like older, old, old fogey dinosaur hockey fans will tell right. you that Slapshot is the best hockey movie sure. ever made. No, Goon is the best hockey movie ever okay. made. Um, uh, See, and I'm right there in the middle. I like Miracle a lot. <laughs> uh, I never liked Miracle. I like the hockey scenes in Miracle. I think. Yeah. The same way I felt. What was the other? Um, Mystery Alaska? No, no. Uh, Gavin O'Connor's MMA movie, Warrior. Oh, Warrior, yeah, yeah. The fight scenes are yeah. amazing. I feel like that's what Gavin O'Connor is so good at, like, staging actual sports as drama. Yeah. Uh, but then, like, in both Miracle and Warrior, I feel like all the stuff that's not, you know, on the ice or on the mat or whatever uh, is just, like, marking time to get back to the stuff that I like. I think Nick Nolte's pretty good in it. Um, sure, sure, sure. Uh, fine, that's whatever. <laughs> but Goon. Anyway, Goon. Uh, That's where it's at. Yeah. So I, I, all I want to do is just tell you, if you haven't seen Goon, to just go watch Goon. It's yeah. It's so cool. Uh, it's, um, you know, Sean William Scott is an actor that I've always liked. Uh, it, mm-hmm. But it's, it's an, like, I like him despite the fact that if you look at, if you look him up on IMDb, he's been in so many bad movies. Yeah. Um, but there are occasionally movies that know how to, to use him. And I would say Goon is, the number one right. um, role models is number two. Um, I like him in uh, the rundown. I think he's uh, uh, very yeah, effective a, in the rundown. Decent one. I mean, like, and he does, he could be good in stuff. that's not good. You know, I mean like I've always had kind of a soft spot for dude. Where's my car? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, but even like a stifler, even in the bad, like even like American reunion, mm. like the stifler stuff is the best when he should be the character who's the most exhausting. Yeah. You know, cause he's just like the catchphrase machine or whatever, yeah. but because he's such a natural comic actor and has yeah. this like, 
he could be like obnoxious, but also there's always something lovable about Jolene Scott's characters. There's a, there's an odd, uh, childlike innocence, almost as if like, ah, he doesn't know any better. Yeah. Well, I would say one of the funniest parts in the new, the, the sequel, which is unfortunately not that great. Uh, but he and his wife are in a big argument. He's come home. He's like, uh, bruised up again from getting from hockey fights or whatever. And she like grabs this bag a packed bag and walks to the door and, she, and he's like where are you going and she's like I'm not going anywhere and shoves the bag at him and he still not getting it like reaches into the bag and pulls out a can of soup and he's like hey I eat this soup <laughs> <laughs> there is a certain type of dumb guy yeah. that can sell that not yeah. to imply he's dumb but like he can no, but sell he plays dumb, dumb. Yeah. like that's one of the things about Doug Glatt the the character in both goon movies is that he is dumb but he is yeah. also so sweet um, um like remember, I think it was in the trailer the, you, see the, you never saw goon right no but in the trailer for the first one when it's like the moment before the big fight between him and his rival played by Liev Schreiber uh Liev Schreiber asked him like you ready to do this and he goes Yes, I am. Thank you for asking. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Goon's on Netflix, isn't it? uh, I hope so. Yeah, you should definitely watch it. It's really good. Uh, I like Liev Schreiber. And and Liev Schreiber is back in in this movie. And, like, uh, the premise of this one is that now, um, at the beginning of the uh, the movie, a new up-and-comer, who's also a bruiser, uh, beats the shit out of Doug Glatt, and he ends up... uh, like having to, you know, drop off the team for a couple months because he's mm. so uh, so worn out, and then so he goes back to Liev Schreiber, who was his rival in the first movie that he beat yeah. at the end of the first movie, uh, and he sort of becomes his like, you know, Burgess Meredith, mm. <laughs> um, and they train him to get him back into the uh, back into the the, the minor league, um, mm. so he can face off against Wyatt Russell uh, again. Um, but it just uh, the movie unfortunately has. Like what I just said is the bones of the plot. There's so much other shit going on in this movie that doesn't need to be there. Yeah. There's so many like, um, you know, uh, you probably don't know who um, Callum Keith Rennie is. Uh, he's he was on Battlestar Galactica, yeah. but not in the episodes you've gotten to yet. Okay. That's where I mostly know him from. So he plays the owner of the minor league team. Okay. And there's so many things about him like making personnel moves, like trading players back and forth that are like. It's like, oh, I can't believe he did that. I can't believe he did. But it's like at the end of the movie, it's like, none of this movie didn't need any of that. Like that's yeah. not a part of the story. Like why is it? The movie is only it's less than ten minutes longer than the first one, but it felt like it was hmm. a full half hour longer. Uh, are the hockey scenes well staged? Yeah, yeah, they are. Okay. Yeah, Jay, Bar- Jay Baruchel, I think, has it in him to be a good director. Okay. Um, oh, the other. Uh, great comic set piece uh, in the sequel comes from of all people Kim Coates who I, is a good actor but uh, yeah. I, don't, I don't think of him as a comedic actor usually mm. um, but he plays the coach and one of the jokes I think this is why people who like Slapshot and people who like hockey in general like the goon movies is that they are they love the sport but the movies are also incredibly violent yeah. and incredibly foul mouthed which is yes. what like hockey fans tend to like that sort of thing and so Kim Coates plays the, t- the coach of the team who is just it just every other word is fuck 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 yeah. um, and so there's a part where they're traveling 
uh, to an away game and the, like the shot starts at, like he's standing in the plane in front of all the players giving a speech and then like a flight attendant is like <clears throat> and like the cuts to a wide shot and you realize like they're taking a commercial flight <laughs> <laughs> so he's just been talking about like ramming their cocks up the other guy's asses and stuff like that <laughs> um Oh. And that, that scene actually goes on for a while. And Kim Coates uh, and this fight, I should have looked up the actors who plays the flight attendant because they, they like are all become like this for one scene. They become like a weird comedy duo. And mm-hmm. that's really good. Uh, I'm so a sucker for that type of joke yeah. where the reveal of like, <laughs> Oh, outside the frame, there's an entire world that, uh, yeah. that exists. Yeah. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, if goon, if goon is on Netflix, I'm not sure if it is, you should watch it. When Goon Last of the Enforcers comes to Netflix, absolutely throw okay. it on. It's you, worst ways to, to kill a hundred minutes. But as someone who thinks that Goon is the best hockey movie in one of the all time great sports movies, it's kind of a bummer. Okay. Um, I think that uh, I can't remember who wrote the review for the AV Club. My review is up on BattleshipRetention.com, but let me direct you to somebody else's review who said, uh, "If you loved the first one, you'll kind of like Last of the Enforcers." There we go. <laughs> um, and then I'll end uh, my movie list here um, with uh, a movie that is playing in a, a, a Los Angeles theater this week. It's a new restoration of a 1960 French film by Jacques Becker um, called Le Trou, which I guess means the hole. Uh, and it is, uh, you'll hear me say this again on the upcoming uh, main canon numbered episode. Uh, it may very well be the greatest prison break movie I've ever seen. All right. Uh, the the premise is so it starts with there's there's one character who's uh, in the, in this prison um, and he gets he's I guess sort of our protagonist his name is Claude um, he gets relocated to another cell that already has four guys in it because his cell his whole block is being renovated so they re- relocate all these characters and so he's at first like they don't trust him but he pretty quickly gains their trust and they're like okay well now that you're in our cell you sort of have to be in on this thing we're planning a breakout and here's and then it's like here's the plan and then it cuts away and so this is a movie kind of like uh, in my review I, uh, which you can find at battleshipretention.com I compare it to Ocean's Eleven it's, okay. it's, it's the kind of movie where the characters know the plan and the audience doesn't so they're right. always one step behind which is fun to watch to see it unfold mm-hmm. you know um, and so the movie's two hours and 15 minutes long which is long um, but uh, it's you know okay I'll say one of my I was going to say this is like my catchphrase, but it would be a really boring and long catchphrase. Okay. But um, one of the best things that movies can do because they are a fourth dimensional art form, mm-hmm. uh, four dimensional art form is depict process. Right. And that's what the true is. It's just, we see over the course of this, like once it starts, then it's just like, a series of scenes of them like here's the first step here's how we get into the basement okay here's how we get from this basement into the next room of the basement here's how we get into the next room here's how we get into the sewer here's how we get like and so it's just depicting and basically I was saying it's why heist movies and caper movies like do so well well I said this is uh, I I said to a friend of ours this is it's like the wordless heist sequence in Rafifi Mm -hmm. over and over again with dialogue scenes in between yeah Um, and it's absolutely uh, wonderful. Um, and, uh, it's more than just, you know, I mean, that would be satisfying enough on its own really to just see these guys trying to get out. But there's also this, um, tension that comes from us never being quite sure how, how much our main guy is on the team. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yes. 
you know, and that it it gets a lot of mileage out of that from relatively few scenes that are actually about that. A lot of it is in, in the performance. This guy, uh, Mark Michel, I think is his name, who's the, the actor. A lot of the actors were non-actors. Um, at least one of them went on to uh, a career in acting. There's one guy who is one of the main five guys. This is his only role. He's great in the movie, hmm. but the reason he was cast is because he has broken out of prison six times in his life and was actually involved in the prison, the real life prison break that this plot was based on. <laughs> well, there you go. So they, they cast him and he's great. Like he's, uh, I wonder why they didn't, people didn't cast him in more stuff. Uh, he's, yeah, he's a great little, that's like, uh, character. That's like, was it Joseph Welch in, uh, anatomy of a murder? I never saw Anatomy of Murder. Oh, I think you would like it a lot. Uh, but he plays the judge. Okay. And Joseph Welsh, you may recall, is the guy who said to Joe McCarthy, oh. at long last, have you no decency? Yeah. So, Otto Preminger. It seems like a very Preminger thing to do, to like see that and say, yeah. I need to cast that man. And he does it. He, it's a really great performance in the film. And I think he won a Golden Globe for like best newcomer. It's like he's in mid, he's in mid 60s. <laughs> also, he didn't do anything afterwards. It's just like this little one off. But uh, but I thought it was uh, inspired casting. Um, uh, so I guess that's it for movies for me. Again, like Latrue is playing. It's a new restoration. It's playing at the Aria Fine Arts Theater uh, for at least a week in Los Angeles. So I'm not sure where else will be playing or uh, I'm assuming usually I mean, this is a Rialto Pictures restoration. Usually this is a precursor to a Blu-ray release of the 4K, you know, uh, oh, restoration or the, you know, in. Do you know who's releasing it? Um, I don't know who's doing the the Blu-ray. OK, um, but uh, hopefully um, somebody good. But I guess if they're just doing the 4K, then it's fine. Yeah, I mean, did, well, what do you mean? I mean, it's going to be good. No, I just, you mean I just somebody mean, who will send it to us for free? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> look, any production company that sends us uh, free stuff, they're pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> pretty prestigious, I like to think. Um, okay, so my last, you mentioned Nat Wolf. Okay, you watched uh, The Fault in Our Stars? I did not. I watched Death Note, directed oh. by Adam Wingard. Um, I'm unfamiliar with the source material, uh, but. There's a lot of neat ideas in Death Note, and it is visually quite, uh, I won't say breathtaking, it's not quite that, but its it, it always holds my interest. It kind of grabs you and just demands your interest, as is the nature of uh, Adam Wingard. Mm-hmm. But, um, and, and the... Yeah, the idea, the concepts, the performances, uh, always nice to see uh, Shea Wiggum um, yeah. as the main character's uh, father. And Nat Wolf actually does a great job. And uh, uh, Willem Dafoe plays uh, this uh, death god. And then uh, there's uh, an actor that I'm uh, familiar with almost solely through um, Selma, but he was also in Get Out. And that's uh, Lakeith Stanfield. He's in uh, everything these days. Yeah. And, he and was, um, the thing you were, the big thing that you haven't watched is Atlanta. He's one of the main guys. Oh, on Atlanta. I've seen two episodes of that. Okay. Yes. I have seen him in that as well. Uh, yeah, he's very good in this. Uh, and it's a very odd, uh, 
eccentric character and I think he does a great job with it. But, um, the big problem, and I'm certainly not the only one to say it, is that like this needed to be a series. They cram so much shit into a hundred minutes. Um, and it's all interesting, but it's like, wait, wait, what, where, how did we get here? Literally 30 seconds ago, we were in this other place. Like, you know, it's, it's this kid who comes in possession of this, uh, this journal looking thing. And if he writes somebody's name down, uh, while picturing their face, then he can kill them basically. And then he can even write down how they die. And in doing so, he can kind of manipulate people, uh, as well and have them do what he wants them to do. Um, so, okay, that's very interesting. And so he, he gets this journal thing, the death note of the title. Um, and he and his girlfriends decide like, you know what, we, we're going to enact some justice in this world. And then it launches into a montage, not of them deciding, Oh, this criminal did something terrible and then got off. It's not a montage of that. That has our, that has been assumed at this point. The montage is the fan base, the worldwide fan base that they're, that these people under a different name, uh, cause they're claim they're, they're finding a way to claim, uh, responsibility. And so, uh, the, uh, I think like Keo or something like that, uh, is the name that they put out there as the thing responsible for this. Okay. And there's like a cult devoted to Keo because like, Oh, the Keo is providing the justice that God himself does not. And so like, it jumps into that. Wow. And like, that's an entire episode of a show. At least, at least that's yeah. the entire show in many ways. Uh, and so it's just like, wh- why did you, wow. why did Netflix feel like this just needed to be a movie? And Adam Wingard has said like, depending, depending on if it's popular or not, then, uh, if it does well, then they'll do another one. I just like, no, just do a series. Everything about this is just screaming to be a series. It's it's such an odd wow. choice, and things just fly by so quickly. Um, within that, they still manage to find some powerful moments and some solid images and some good performances. But it just seems like I won't say doomed because it's still effective in certain areas. But just compared to what it could have been and what it easily could have been, mm-hmm. you know, this is not like some guy who like scraped together some money. This is Netflix. They put together series all the time. Yeah. You know, this could have been that and should have been that. And so it's uh, it's, it's ultimately a bummer. I was looking forward to it. Okay. Um, and then, uh, I think you have two TV shows I do. to talk about. So you go first. All right. Speaking of Netflix TV shows, I watched the defenders, which is the, uh, culmination the of Weaver the show. Yes, absolutely. Uh, boy, I wish it were that, um, because she does a fine job, but, uh, it really is interesting both seasons of daredevil are solid jessica jones didn't care for it much at the time but in retrospect it's great uh compared to some of these other things luke cage the first half is pretty solid iron fist i got through three episodes before i just gave up um that's crazy and then i mean it's not because that's how everyone seems to feel but i'm just surprised that it i wanted to push through because because in this area i am kind of a completist a completionist uh couldn't do it and then I start watching this, uh, watching the defenders and it's, you know, hangs together pretty well for a while. And then it just 
meanders and it doesn't really seem to know where it wants to go. And the biggest crime for something like this, you know, it, it just gives me so much more respect for, you know, noted monster Joss Whedon, I guess. I don't know. I was, well, with all those articles, like we I haven't I, talked about that. Have we? we have not. Um, and I know it sounds terrible, but my first thought is not necessarily to defend him, but my first thought is like, we need to get corroboration because ex-wife, huh? You know, now, I, my first thought is, uh, that sounds awful. Um, but it's kind of, it's not, he didn't commit a crime. So I kind of feel like, uh, right. It's not our business in a way. I do kind of feel that. Yes, this is not a Cosby situation. Um, right. And, yeah. This is more of a David Letterman situation. Yeah. Um, and I think, but the difference uh, I guess is that Joss Whedon, um, has, uh, advertised himself as, uh, right. as, as a, as a feminist icon of sorts. And, um, some of the behavior and you know, I would like to, get his side of the story, but yeah, sure. the, the behavior as described is, um, doesn't necessarily, uh, jive with that. The, yeah. She describes him as like using this like excuse about like, well, I'm like a powerful man and these women are, you know, these women are adoring and hungry and like throwing themselves. I mean, that just doesn't seem like a very for sort of feminist. <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't want to, claim to speak for what feminism is and isn't um that like the fact like look the idea that a big famous guy <laughs> cheated on his wife is it doesn't ex- i'm not exactly going to clutch my pearls yeah um but when it came to that sort of description of uh, uh of his behavior that was the stuff that was like that that sounded gross to me and that yeah. i would like to um hear m- more about or i don't know or less maybe it could go away and for us and I think I mean obviously this woman is of course uh, yes. scarred by this. The uh, and what I will say, and again, like of course you and I have the freedom to say this, but um, the thing about Bill Cosby is that he himself he was his brand. Mm-hmm. I sorry I'm sorry to use the word brand, but uh, I can't think of what else. Um, so it's the sort of thing that we millennials say all the time. Abs- oh damn it! Uh, <laughs> um, uh, so um, whereas like. Buffy and Angel and Firefly, those are things that he created, and he might have. And with Bu- with Buffy, it certainly sounds like he created with a certain feminist mentality. And though he, let's go ahead and just assume that everything is that his ex wife said is correct. Right. Okay. Um, him not living up to his uh, his own standard does not mean that his shows have not. Oh, absolutely. I and, have no, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep watching how, Buffy and Angel for the rest of my life. Uh, well, and then when you have like the, the, the Joss Whedon fan page, like closing down because of this, it's just like, Hey, it's unfortunate that he, if this is, if this is a, as true as it, it seems to be, uh, it's unfortunate, but you know, like we're all incredibly broken people. And, I regularly do not live up to my own standard of sure, life yeah. and philosophy. Um, but you know, how wonderful is it that, that beautiful things can come out of extremely broken people, even in the midst of them being very broken. And so, um, so what I was going to say, uh, it doesn't actually have anything to do with this, but like 
Avengers and Avengers Age of Ultron, something that I appreciated, you, you and I both appreciated at the time, but when you see something like the Defenders, you realize like, oh my gosh, I, I, he, is, he is owed so much more praise for this, which is mm. like, if you can't handle ensemble, don't do an ensemble show. Like, hand it off to someone who can, because nine times out of ten, it feels like the Defenders does not know what to do when all four characters are in the same room, much less when they're all doing different things. And it is just... It just feels there's so much potential there, and then it just never quite comes together. Sigourney Weaver does what she can with her with her part, but then the show even kind of cuts her off at the knees at some point. It is unfortunate. Mm. Um, I didn't anticipate going into that much detail about Joss Whedon. Sorry about that. Uh, I actually but, have more that I want to say. Oh, okay, about sorry. Uh, which is about, about, about the fan page. Just yeah. like this is why we should. I don't know why we feel like we have to develop cults of personality around the people who make the stuff that we like. Why can't we just like the stuff? I know. You know? Jeremy Renner's one, too. Like, we all want to like Hawkeye. Yeah. And he's a great actor, as you talked about, but then he's also, like, seems like kind of a dick, uh, you know, like, defending, uh, using the word slut, like, uh, in an interview. Do you remember that? I don't remember that. Basically, what happened was he and Chris Evans were giving an interview together, I think, for Age of Ultron, this would have been. Okay. Uh, and they joked about, like, the Avengers hooking up with one another. And I think um, they both used, like, jokingly, like, said, like, you know, what if Black Widow was, like, a, a slut or something like that. Mm. Uh, and people, you know, that's a, it's a gross word that I think is probably has hurt more people than someone who uses it casually, like Jeremy Renner did. Sure. Uh, is, are thinking, is thinking about. Um and Chris Evans had a very apologetic response and Jeremy Renner was like, nope, I'm not going to apologize. I'd say that, uh, you know, about a guy who was promiscuous too. And it's like, well, there's, you know, you don't get to ignore the fact that there is a societal double, double standard, sure. uh, that people are working with. So that was a bit. And then there was also the thing, speaking of other co-stars, um, I guess, uh, Bradley Cooper is who's so because they were in American Hustle together. Oh yeah, and Bradley Cooper is someone who's and Bradley Cooper also is the voice of Rocket Raccoon, so they're co-stars in that as well. Um, Jeremy Renner hasn't been in any Guardians they, of the Galaxy. They, well, but they're all going to come together in the next. Okay, one. so eventually they'll be co-stars. Yeah, um, but I guess Bradley Cooper is very like uh, you know I want the the women that I am co-headlining movies with to be making the same money mm-hmm. uh, as I am, and has like taken you know, pay cuts or vowed to take pay cuts, that sort of thing. And so when Jeremy Renner, because it came up about Jennifer Lawrence, I guess, in American, American hustle. And Jeremy Renner's response was like, ah, none of that stuff's any of my business. <laughs> I think that kind of <laughs> turns people off too. Um, so anyway, well, I'm sure like, we got to stop <clears throat> assuming that we will like the people who make the stuff we like. I honestly, because I'm a bit of a cynic, I go the other way. I tend to assume people are assholes. Um, Probably a fair assumption. Yeah. Uh, because it's, it's okay to think Jeremy Renner is good at movies and to think he's probably an asshole. Yes. He's good at movies. <laughs> Did I say at movies? I think I meant, I meant to say in movies. I think you said at, uh, which I like a lot. Yeah. He's um, good at movies. No, he's not. He's you and I are good at movies. He's the best at movies. Um, um, anyway, but no, so, I, yeah. I think you're absolutely right. And I think this is a, it, this is actually kind of a, a thing that I got into a bit of a, an argument with uh, people at school um, in class one day because we were reading through, I forget who it was, 
boy, I wish I wish I remember, but it was an author, and we were, we had a reading assignment where we were reading through like some journals that he had written as he was writing this seminal novel. Okay. And like a fr- and after his death, like a friend or a relative like found all these notebooks and not necessarily wanting to be exploitative, but they thought like, "Oh, well, this guy is so well respected that people are going to want to see his process." I got so angry. I was like, I don't want to see his process, and what's more, he didn't want us to see his process. Yeah. He was an artist. He was not an academic. You know? And right. so, and what's more is like, even as pe- as we were reading through it, like there was a section that could be seen as a little bit of hashtag problematic and people in the classroom were having problems with it. It's like, that didn't wind up in the final product. So you know what? Fuck it. Like, oh, I hate right. to put it that way, but like, if we start to like judge people for the brainstorming that they, that they don't show anybody, like we're all screwed. Going back to Joss Whedon and yeah. that allegedly leaked Wonder Woman script. Did you read about uh, no, I did not. You know, he was developing a Wonder Woman yes. 10 years ago, I yes. guess. Uh, and some pages came out that were allegedly from that script that hasn't been confirmed um, that weren't very good. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the reaction is the same. Like, well, if, if he did write it, he didn't make that. Yeah. So he also decided that, I don't know, I don't want to sound like I'm too much of a Joss Whedon apologist. I'm not a, an apologist. I'm just saying. As an artist, his, it's the it's the idea it's like a person's work should stand on its own now we don't live in a vacuum we're always going to bring the bring this other stuff with us you can't help it Absolutely. but at the same time like and i think that's what's different than the cosby thing is that his work was him at least as a stand-up it's a version of him right and the and the jokes might still be able to stand but it's definitely it's all it's all intermingled when it's a stand-up comic yeah. um unless again, they're Crosby Crosby no David Crosby's great oh don't even get um, me started on David Crosby I don't know if you read that article but that guy is a monster <laughs> um, he actually seems like a really nice guy I've heard he's a nice guy um, and when I saw Crosby Stills and Nash a few years ago it was right, right after that movie The Cove came out oh, yeah. about the uh, Japanese people murdering dolphins yeah it's pretty uh, rough yeah he gave he was clearly very moved by that movie and like mm-hmm. talked about it at the like on stage hmm. um Anyway, uh, again, Bill Cosby committed crime, uh, many crimes. Yes, um, yes. So there's that as well. What Joss Whedon did is not criminal. It's just gross. Right. Um, but yeah, and so if you want to keep, if you want to just keep on enjoying Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you can. Yeah. It's fine. There's no reason. And there'll be, there probably would be people out there. They'd be like, how can you get behind that? It's like, cause it's a good fucking show and a horror. And, and let's say, let's go the absolute most extreme, a horrible person. I don't think necessarily he's a horrible person, but let's say that a horrible person made a great thing. This is the first time that's ever happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Grow the fuck up. Yeah. I'm sorry to be that angry, but just, ugh. These damn millennials, David. Yeah, well, we do tend to, we millennials do tend to, like I've said before, and like I've already said this episode, like we we keep assuming that we will like the people who make the stuff we like. Mm, don't meet your heroes. I, yeah, that's, there's a reason that's a saying. Yeah. And I feel like there, there's a generation that never heard that somehow. Yeah. Um, yeah, there, there's a reason that's a saying. Uh, I mean, like I, you know, I, don't, I believe in forgiveness, um, I still, when I think about Elliot Kazan, that's something that, oh, um, right. yeah. that gets my, my ire up. Uh, it's rough because it's still within the, cause that one's in the, within the business. Yeah. So like, 
but like he still made great movies. He did, but the, uh, him his actions could have could have prevented other people from making good movies as well. So like it does impact the output and the yeah, art itself. Okay, um, but also I believe in forgiveness. Yes. So, uh, yes. I'm not sure if I had been at the Academy Awards, would I have pulled a Nick Nolte and sat on my hands? Um, I think I probably would have applauded. You would have applauded. Mm, it's tough. I don't blame anyone from go for going either way. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. So before we get that into might be like the most ballsy thing the Academy has done in our lifetime is give him, uh, give him lifetime achievement. They had to have known that that was not, uh, sure, yeah. that was not going to be universally loved. Yeah. Um, it wasn't Nick Nolte is one of the ones who stayed seated, right? Yeah. And Ed, okay. Ed Harris as Ed well. Harris. Was, you know what? I was thinking, wait, was it Nick Nolte or Ed Harris? It was both. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, okay. Uh, TV for me, I, we've gone on too long. I just want to mention the project runway is back. I'm an episode behind at this point. Cause I was out of town. Um, helping my brother get married. <laughs> sure. Which I mean, standing, uh, as a groomsman. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about this more in the, you didn't in interrupt the, the ceremony. So <laughs> that's, that's true. That's a win. Uh, that's, that's true. Um, some other stuff kind of did, uh, it's true, but in like a, in a cute way, like, look, if you're going to ask like a three year old to be like the flower oh, yeah. girl, like it's not going to go off without a hitch. Yeah. You know, uh, she might very well knock over one of the vases of flowers that's holding down the runner on this rooftop wedding oh, wow. and get it all wet before the bride walks. Down. <laughs> but um, it's cute when that happens. Sure. Um, anyway, uh, Project Runway's back. Uh, I'm stoked. I love this show. Um, it went through some growing pains when it first uh, moved to Lifetime, but I feel like it's uh, found itself again in recent recent seasons. And they, like I said, I haven't seen the second episode yet. They definitely got rid of the right person the first episode. So good for them. All right. Um, oh, and Olivia Munn. Okay. She, you've seen enough Project Homeway to know that there's a guest judge every yes. week. Olivia Munn was the guest judge in the first episode. She's awesome. Who's Olivia Munn again? Okay, see? There are a few Olivia's, I feel like. Olivia Munn, what I know her from is Magic Mike. Okay. But she's that. also um, Psylocke in... Got it. Uh, I didn't see X-Men Apocalypse, okay, but she's yes. Psylocke. Got it. Um, and she's done other things, too. I think, yeah. She's definitely done other things. People know who she is. I think Magic Mike m- might literally be the only thing I've ever seen her in, off the top of my head. Um, but there are so many times that the um, the guest judge on Project Runway fills me with secondhand embarrassment. I'm sure. You know, because they're like, you're, you're sitting next to like two, you're yeah. sitting next to, you know, Nina Garcia from Mary Claire Magazine, yeah. Zach Posen, fashion designer, yeah. and Heidi freaking Klum. Yeah. And like, they're trying to chime in like they're on that level, <laughs> you know, and uh, a lot of times they're, they're just, they're just not, or it goes the other way and they're just too meek about it. Right. And Olivia Munn just like had the, like, a great sort of confidence without it being overconfidence. Mm-hmm. She had interesting things to say, like insights. She was willing to disagree with the other judges, which is something that I think sometimes, yeah. uh, some of the guests, when I talk about them being meek, some of them being like, 
uh, yeah, I think what Heidi thinks. They don't say that out loud, but I yeah. kind of see that like thought process going on. Like, I don't want to embarrass myself here. Um, representing my personal brand, hashtag brand. Yes. Um, uh, so that's the first thing I'll say about the first episode is they got rid of the right person. And, uh, I'm a fan of Olivia Munn. It seems to me that if I'm a guest judge on that show, I look at Zach Posen's hair and I think this man's not going to intimidate me about anything (laughs) because Uh, he made that. He keeps making that choice. Yeah. He also does this thing. He wears like he's clearly doing it on purpose, but he's mixing sort of more formal types of like tailored wear yes. like he he wears suits like double breasted suits with peak lapels which is a very formal type of look mm. but then he wears them with like button down shirt collars like, and yeah. like knit ties which is like a dress down type of like sportswear yeah. type of look and it always drives me crazy but he clearly like if someone of his stature is doing it repeatedly he knows what he's doing he knows yes. he's breaking quote-unquote rules yes but uh it always looks odd to me but that's not the real offensive thing about zach posen okay it's the oh, part it's, he gets handsy, right? Yeah, because yeah. the part they added only a few seasons ago, where after they've done the the initial judging of the you know the monosodak to walk the runway, they get to inspect up close the garments of the top three and bottom three. Yes, um, and uh, I would say Heidi and Nina and the guest judge are usually very respectful, looking at the garments on the women. And Zach Wilson will walk right up to these women and just start like tugging at them and like he really, adding them he gets like, in there yeah and it always makes me super uncomfortable yeah anyway um so yeah project one back um okay so lastly for me i watched the tick uh which on, one on amazon there's so many yes oh. the one uh the new one with peter serafinowitz and uh griffin newman i can't say he's a friend of the show but we met him last year at comic-con and talked at length um and a wonderful jackie earl haley i should also mention um as uh wait can i tell a story about the wedding that i forgot about sure does it involve jackie earl haley weirdly and not directly (laughs) it involves those words okay um so this venue was i think they're new at hosting weddings like things weren't quite set up so um they had to do like the person like who announces like You've, seen, you've been to enough weddings. We didn't do this at my wedding because there weren't there wasn't a bridal party. But right. like when everyone's seated for dinner and then they announced the bridal party and right. then end with the they like didn't have a PA set up or didn't have a person like there was no one there to do that. Like the mm. wedding coordinator didn't. I, I think she might have dropped dropped the ball. Honestly, I'm being polite because we're on the radio or on the air. The wedding coordinator dropped the ball on more than one thing. Um, I get, I, at this point, I kind of get the impression that that's what they do more than actually coordinate. Really? Uh, just based on what Jen has, has told well, me. Then I, uh, I should thank Jen again for recommending the wedding coordinator. She mm-hmm. recommended for us, uh, Angela, who is great. But, um, so anyway, at the last minute, like, the people, the, one of the guys from the band, they had my, my brother had a band instead of a DJ, mm. was nice enough to volunteer to like set up a microphone and, and speakers and just do the intro- introductions. And this guy looked exactly like Jackie Earl Haley. <laughs> and he heard my brother, the groom, say that. So in the middle of like in- announcing, he was like, oh, did you just say Jackie? I don't like the groom right now. <laughs> he like said that to the entire room. Uh, so apparently this is a guy who gets this a lot. That he looks oh. like Jackie Earl Haley. Well, uh, you should but, try not to. <laughs> um, anyway, um, sorry, go on. So, The Tick. Uh, some really, it's, it is often very funny. It takes a while, you know, I hate to say it, but it takes a moment 
to get used to what Peter Serafinowicz is doing. Oh. He's not doing anything wrong, but you're used to Townsend Coleman, and then eventually you're used to Patrick Warburton. Mm-hmm. And he's and and Peter Serafinowicz is doing something different. But also the way the 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 show is structured. I mean, this is Arthur's show, 100%, which is usually how it works. Like, Arthur is definitely more of an, our, our, our entry point. But here, like, he is a, 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 a real victim of violence. Mm. It's never, like, people that he loved, uh, that he loves, uh, have been killed by criminals in front of him. And though the sequence is actually kind of amusing, uh, by the time we see Arthur, like, he is taking all kind. He's basically just suffering from PTSD. Has had a series of of mental problems. His sister is just trying to like take care of him and and kind of coddles him. But in you know she's very gentle with him. And he he really seems like a a sad and a weak person, but also someone who knows he has tremendous strength inside of him, and yet when the tick comes along and tries to fu- and tries to encourage that, like he just pushes him away, pushes him away. And then over the course of the sadly only six episodes, uh, that are available, uh, it is interesting to see Arthur really start to embrace who he knows he is and who surprisingly the tick seems to know he is. Um, yeah. so there's you a lot of sadly, but I'm, I mean, I haven't watched it, but I'm okay with shorter seasons, you know, it's, it's unfortunate cause like more concentrated quality that way. Yeah. I guess eight would have been fine, but like six is a little short. Um, and the episode seems short on top of everything else. But, uh, one thing that I, that did surprise me is that this is R rated, uh, language, especially and violence. There's a character called over, uh, called overkill who just, it's just, uh, what is it like? I believe he, he kills a bunch of people in front of Arthur. And I think the way Arthur describes it, it's like, it's like, it was like he was looking for a place to put his knife and wasn't happy with any of the place <laughs> he, he tried. Um, and so, uh, so that's, that's interesting. Um, I had cause they was... are definitely, they're definitely alienating an audience based on what I, based on comments I've read. Um, By making it so violent. Yeah. Hmm. And, and language. Okay. Um, so I thought that was interesting. And then uh, there's a character who's a dog. His name is Midnight. He talks. And he was the sidekick for like this Christian-themed superhero. And the dog himself became a Christian. And then when his superhero died, he started to realize that... He, and he, he wrote a book called <laughs> like Good Intentions or something like that. And it's all about uh, how after his... his uh, his hero died that he suddenly realized like that's when I realized there is no God, there is only dog. And, (laughs) and I was like, and I was trying to think like midnight's voice sounds familiar. Who's Townsend Coleman. Oh, that's great. And so I thought that was a nice, a nice little moment. But, uh, but I'm, I, I do enjoy it. I think honestly, one of the downsides of it only being six episodes is it takes a couple episodes to get into the cadence. And then once you are, it's, it's, it's done, which is unfortunate, but, uh, but it's definitely worth watching. I, I liked it a lot. Do you know that our friend Frank McGrath, Frank, yeah. feel my wrath McGrath oh, yeah. is one of the editors. I did know that. Yes. And it is a, it is a, an interestingly edited, uh, show just because like the nature of the tick, it's like it's action and it's humor and both of them are 
various degrees of twisted. Yeah, and I think that's that's what Frank had to, I, like. That's why I knew it was more action heavy because Frank had told me about his like interview process because mm-hmm. Frank has an extensive comedy editing background, including yeah. weird comedy. Yeah, um, but they were like maybe a little nervous because they were like, you know, I want you to understand this is an action show. Uh, yeah, yeah, I. I did go back and watch a couple episodes of the live action tick, uh, from the early 2000s. Which wasn't an action show almost at all. At all. Yeah. Uh, the action always took place off screen and they would just talk about it afterwards with that, which I thought was particularly inspired, uh-huh. but this is definitely trying to do the opposite of that. Like, yeah, it really does want to, to feature action where that, where it can. But, right. uh, but yeah, I was uh, glad I saw it and I highly recommend it. Yeah. <sighs> 